Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do so. I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hands, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that we have the scriptures to open this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of them and the blessing it is to hear your word. Father, I Thank you that it is your spirit that has given them and it is your spirit that illumines them and and even uses frail preachers, Lord, to proclaim your truth. Would you accomplish your good work today in each heart that is here? And you know every heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it was nearly 20 years ago when uh, Jay and I were in seminary together and one of... uh, One of our professors was preaching in chapel, and he preached from Psalm 90, verse 12. Psalm 90 is that one psalm that Moses wrote. And verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And this professor told of a conversation that he had recently had when he was working at this event, this Christian event. And at this event, there was a lot of people who were there to enjoy a good time. And there was this older retired pastor and his wife. And our professor says that he went up to them and asked them, because he wanted to glean from this older pastor. He was a younger man at the time. And he wanted to learn from him and, and tell just the joys and the lessons that he had for ministry. And, and so he began asking him about his family and his life and the ministry that he had. But it became obvious to our professor that this man was broken. He was greatly discouraged. And his wife was as well. For as they talked about their life, they were at this time at the end of it suffering bitter fruit Bitter fruit because of their children and what had gone on. And, and a lot of it was convicting to them because they had recognized that they had neglected the ministry to their own family. And they did so under the uh, excuse that they were ministering to so many other people. And our professor used that story to encourage us to number our days to count our days, to, to make them count, knowing that there is an end. Moses talks about that we may have 70, maybe 80. You know, some of God blesses with more. But we need to number them that we may present a heart of wisdom. 
at the same era when we were in seminary. In fact, I think this was during uh, orientation. So it's maybe the very first day that you're there. And, and one of the professors told a story of a man who had spent his seminary years working very hard and reading book after book after book and gave his, his time, his greatest efforts to his studies. And on graduation day, his wife, having been neglected year after year, uh, she had all of his books stacked up and stacked up on the bed and said, you have loved these these years and you have neglected me these years. And she was gone on graduation day. And if the professor's intent was to leave us in a cold sweat, it worked. I mean, seriously, we were there and I, I've never forgotten that story. And it really, it sobered me at the time we had, uh, our two oldest were just two little girls, four and two at the time. And, and I just saw my need to minister to my family, to my wife and to my children with the same and even greater commitment to which I serve every other calling, any other calling to which the Lord has put on my heart. What does the next generation need? What is it that we are to invest in and to give them? The world is, is changing so fast. It's, it's like a blink. I mean, I actually have grandkids now. I mean, how crazy is that? And it, it just goes so, so quickly. And we think, I, can I keep up? Is, is what was given to me the same that I should give? What is it that we should give? How are we to be equipped? How are our own hearts to be prepared for eternity? How are we to invest in others that they are prepared for eternity? God has revealed what we need in the Bible. That's a simple answer, but it is profound. God has revealed what we need in the Bible. It is profitable to equip us. And we see specific instructions about ministering to the next generation throughout the scriptures. And there are several passages of the Bible that we could have gone to today that I thought of. I I thought of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think of Proverbs chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. And we're talking about the fear of the Lord. And it says, the instruction, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland on your head and a pendant for your neck. The assumption is that the father and the mother are instructing, that there is a passing on from one generation to the next. But the passage that we are going to look at is this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. Moses is the one who wrote, the book of Deuteronomy, and he wrote it to the second generation of the Hebrews that had been delivered out of Egypt. It was their parents that had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. These are the kids of all of those that had had seen the the plagues in in Egypt, and and they had come through, and they had come up to the land. Their parents had come to the land, but they did not trust God to bring them into the land. Remember, they had sent those spies up in there and they came back with a report and most of them said, they're too big, it's too hard. And, and so God sent them out into the wilderness for the next 38 or so years for that generation to die. So Moses is speaking to the next generation and he's giving them the law again. In fact, that's what the word Deuteronomy means. It's the second law. It doesn't mean a, a different law. It's a second giving of the law. And you look at chapter 5 and you see the Ten Commandments and all of that repeated again. But the original audience is this generation of young families. And you think of these young families. 
that were getting ready to go across the Jordan River and over into the promised land. And, you know, and then they're going to have Jericho and they're going to have Ai and they're going to have all this that they need to conquer. These young families are getting ready to go over there and Moses is preparing them. But these families did not have parents who were faithful. They themselves had not been brought up being taught about God, the covenant of God, the law of God. In fact, the men, none of them had been circumcised, the the sign of the covenant uh, to mark out, to remind them that God had made promises. In fact, it won't be until after they cross the Jordan, before they go to Jericho, that that's yet to happen. And so that's coming for them. But they had been neglected the very fundamental teachings and promises that God had given to these people. And I bring that up because sometimes we think, well, who am I to pass anything on to the next generation? Uh, I, my parents weren't faithful. My parents didn't, didn't teach me. In fact, I've, I've known a number of people, young people, young adults that have said, my parents' marriage was such a mess. I, I never want to attempt that because, because I haven't been brought up being taught such things. But I want to remind you, as God was faithful to prepare them to enter the land, God is faithful to prepare you. God is able to prepare you. And even with this text today, in this passage, Moses is summing up for these young families the significance of the law that he'd repeated in chapter 5. And he's emphasizing the fundamentals of what it means to be God's people, that they must love God and and his law or his revelation of himself is, is known and seen in, in every part of their lives so that it is passed on to their children, to the next generation. What they're doing is he's talking about creating a, a culture of worship, an atmosphere of worship of the true God. And verse 4 is what provides for the Hebrews the, the title of this section. It's known as the Shema tra- from the translation of the Hebrew word, or the, the, the translation of the, the Hebrew word Shema, which is translated there here. And this was repeated. It, it, this would be the closest thing that the, the Hebrews had to a creed, something that was repeated again and again, that set the, the tone or the mantra for them as a people. And these instructions are important for this generation and, and actually every generation, including ours. Because we see this truth repeated in the New Testament, even by Jesus, when, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he do? He quoted these verses here. I already read Paul's instruction to fathers to bring up the children in the way of the Lord. And so... While this command in Deuteronomy 6 is is given to a generation of Israel living under the old covenant, it encapsulates what is true and required for those who are God's people in every age. It defines what is true religion or sincere worship or what it looks like when someone knows and loves God. So I've titled this sermon... A timeless creed for the next generation. A timeless creed for the next generation. This is to be the mantra of of God's people. This is to be for us. 
And as Moses is calling Israel to, to hear this creed, you, this church, we as God's people are, are calling the church and families to hear what is needed, that they may know the covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord. So how is this accomplished? How is this part of our lives and baked into our lives? How are you to be men and women of God that, that knows this and then embraces this and instructs and passes this on to the next generation? Now, if you are a mother or a father, you will certainly hear your responsibility to speak into the lives of your own children from this passage or, or your grandchildren or your nieces or nephews from this passage. That's, it's easy application. That's the low-hanging fruit. You know that. But what about those hearing today that do not have children of their own? Is, is this passage for you or are you just a passive listener today? No, no, this, this passage absolutely is for every one of us under its, under the hearing of it. It's, it's not only a sermon for the children, but it's for every heart that beats to worship God. Your heart needs to be shepherded by what is instructed here. Even among the original audience that, that received this, the Hebrews, that were preparing to enter the land. There were, there were certainly mothers and fathers that were receiving this. And there were men, there were women, there were young people, there were old people. All of the congregation gathered together to hear this, this read. And they all bore the responsibility to make sure the truth revealed was passed on to, was received from one generation to another. And so... There will be those like godly parents like, like Job. Job who would pray for his, his own children. And godly individuals like Daniel who did not have children. Who daily would, would open the windows to, to pray and worship to God. All need to hear the Shema. Hear the call to give attention to God. And so what I want to look at from this text is three directives for the older generation who will instruct the next generation in the way of the Lord. And where it begins is you instructing your very heart for out of your heart. This is not like you, you pass this on. And, and so as you're listening to the sermon today, watch those elbows, right? Don't be like, hey, are you listening today? No, elbow yourself. And then pass it on, okay? It comes first to one's own heart. And so these, these directives, these are simple to understand. In fact, the last one is only one word, okay? They're simple to understand, but they are impossible to accomplish in the strength of one's own flesh. This is not just, you know what? Come on, church. Try a little harder. Do a little more. No. This is abiding. This is depending. As we have sung, we must dependently trust God to enable us to accomplish these directives. First, if you're going to instruct your heart and the hearts of the next generation in the way of the Lord. Number one, from verse four, know the true God. You need to know the true God. The Shema 
is a call for Israel to hear this truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's, it's a command to get their attention. It's as if, it's if Moses walked up to, you know, when you'd have the microphone sitting up there and they, they tap it as sound people hate you to do, but you know, they tap it and say, is this thing on? Right? Let me get your attention or when you're working with children and maybe with, with a large group and people count, start counting out one, two, three, four, five, or hey, all eyes up here. Look, g- give me your attention. That's what this is. Hear. Hear, O Israel. He's, he's not merely calling for them, though, to just hear the sound of his voice or to merely memorize a creed. He's calling for them to understand it, to embrace it, to believe something, to take hold of it. It reminds me of Jesus' statement when he would teach with the parables. Remember, he would conclude saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Moses is saying, hear this. So effective hearing involves the idea of, of understanding. In fact, uh, this, in Genesis eleven seven, the after the confusion of Babel, the lang- confusion of the languages of that Babel, it says that men could no longer hear one another. They, they could hear the sound of each other babbling, right? And the confusion, but they could not understand each other. And so when he says, hear, O Israel, understand, O Israel, embrace Israel, grab onto this. So what needs to be understood? Moses gives a definition of who God truly is. And he says at least three things about God in this brief creed. He says, the Lord is our God. Lord, Yahweh. God is Yahweh. Yahweh was used to speak of his covenant making, his promises that he would give and that he would would keep. Yahweh is God. And because of this, because he makes promises and covenants, he's in relationship. He says, the Lord is our God, not a God from a distance far off that is uninvolved. No, our God, Yahweh, our God, and Yahweh alone has this place. The Lord is is one, that translation there, and it it emphasizes the uniqueness of Yahweh, only Yahweh. He is God. Remember where they were going? Getting ready to cross the Jordan River with all these different people that their names end in Ait and Ait, right? At the end of there. And, and they have all these different gods that are mentioned there. And Baal is going to be mentioned there. And you need to worship Baal or the Asherah pole and all these things. If you want your harvest, if you want your crops, you need to do such thing. And it says, no, no, only Yahweh, only Yahweh is God. Uh, another one of our professors, Dr. Grisanti, in his expositor's commentary, he says, he translates this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. For the Lord is one, Yahweh alone. And the Shema, this creed excludes acceptability of, one, it, it excludes atheism, that there is no God. This is no, there is a God, and we have his name, and he alone is God. But it also excludes polytheism, that there are many gods, or syncretism, that we can mix and match who God would be, or various philosophies and religions, and we can put together our own acceptable version. You know, we, we live, obviously, in an information age in which we receive an incredible amount of 
of information and, and instruction from schools that we attend, from entertainment and the ever-developing platforms of social media. And in that, we hear many descriptions of what is valuable, what is important, and even what is, who is God, or what is a God, who is the higher being, or what is the purposes of life. And all of these things are dumped at you from all sorts of angles. And, and you're basically told, put together what works for you. You be you, all right? And you kind of put together what works for you. I think about this in sort of a silly way as though it's as though we've all been given a Mr. Potato Head toy. And this is our God, okay? This is our God. And that sounds ridiculous to you, but really, it's no, it's no more ridiculous than the description of idolatry in Jeremiah chapter 10, where a guy takes a piece of wood and he cuts it and he takes part of it and he, he props it up and he dresses it up and he paints it and he, he burns the other part of the wood, but, but then he bows down and he worships this piece of wood that he has constructed. And he describes in Jeremiah 10 that it's this thing. Why are you worshiping this thing? It's no more powerful, it says, than a scarecrow in a cucumber field. What a silly illustration that is. And that's, if, if I had a Mr. Potato Head, I'd stick it right here. Except that that might be idolatry in the way that I'm, I'm using it here. But it's, you know, people are given their Mr. Potato Head. This is what is important. This is what you live, live for. People say, well, you know, I, I don't really like that. That's okay. You just open up the backside of that and what? You pull out a different set of eyes. And you stick those on there because you like those better. And you, and you want the earrings on there or you want the, the flower. Go ahead. And if you don't want Mr. Potato Head... Pull out Mrs. Potato Head, right? And you can form your God. You can form what is important to you any way that you you want. Who has Mr. Potato Head in their sermon notes? You do now, right? There you go. You need to know the true God. And the Bible reveals that God is Yahweh alone. And we need to show people, wait, what you're thinking what is important to you, what you're giving your heart to, you've constructed that, and now you're bowing down to it as though you're bowing down to a, a silly toy. That's not God. That philosophy, that, that value that you have, that doesn't go along with who is revealed in the Bible. And you say, well, of course, I'm not worshiping Baal or, or Buddha. Good. But also make sure you have not erected various Idols of your own heart, of human, humanistic philosophies can be worshipped as we value our own ability to solve our greatest problems with our own intellect. We like to, you know, we like to be able to take care of ourselves, right? We like to have that, that knife that has every single tool on it, right? You want the Jeep that has every little accessory on it. That's why cargo pants are so wonderful, right? Because you can, you can put anything in there and carry everything that you might ever, ever need. That humanistic philosophy that I could take care of myself. That's a false God. That is not Yahweh. Yahweh alone is God. Materialism can be our idol as we look to things to accumulate, to satisfy our longings. We can even Christianize these ideas to make them part of our value system like the Israelites did is they they formed this golden calf to represent the God who delivered them from Egypt. No, we don't 
We don't worship the true God in our own way. We need to know who God is, who alone is God, and that's all that we worship. So instruct your own heart and those in your family or your ministry influence in the way of the Lord to do so. They must know the true God. But that knowledge is more than merely possessing correct information. You need to have correct information. You have to get it right. You have to get the truth right. Okay? But it's more than that. So secondly, if you're going to instruct in the way of the Lord, number one, know the true God. Number two, love God truly. Love God truly. Verses 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. The true God is to be truly loved. What is being called for here is a sincere, loyal commitment to the covenant-keeping God. Moses is showing that the kind of relationship Yahweh requires is not merely intellectual nor is it superficial, nor is it an attempt to just outwardly oblige the requirements of a deity to pacify their wrath. Let's just get them off of our our back. No, it is a love relationship. And where does this love come from? Well, it's not, well, you need to just stir it up. You need to try a little harder. No, we love because he first loved us, right? And we sang of God's great love. If an ocean were filled with, I mean, we couldn't write of, of all of God's love. It is so great. But because his love is great, we, we respond in the love that he has put within us. And it's Yahweh's purpose that we would know him and love him with everything that we are, with our whole being. There is nothing reserved. There's nothing held back. There's, there's nothing that is, is off limits. When we don't love God, but we know of God and we know information about God, but it is, it is not affecting our heart. We become the silly toy. We become like the toy of a bobblehead, right? Some of you have a collection of bobbleheads. That bobblehead, which is, is kind of a silly thing. It's a caricature of someone. And it's got this big head that just kind of bounces back and forth, right? And that's what, we've got all this information. And Paul even says in Corinthians, right, that it, knowledge puffs up. And we are puffed up. And all we are is just a, a caricature of what we, we should be. What does that look like? Well, maybe you can tell someone about every Greek word that is translated love in English. But you're also harsh. And you're not kind and patient with those who are weak in faith. Oh, you can give them the definition of love, but you're not loving. And how does that come across? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? You're like a clanging cymbal and a noisy gong. It's, it's, not, it's not helpful. Or someone, some of you can wax eloquent about how God is sovereign. And God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all people in all time. But how does that work out when people, all they see of you is you fretting and complaining about the politics of the day? 
right? No, who's king? Who is Lord? He is sovereign. James says, he gives a description that from the same tongue come a blessing of God, and then in the same breath, a, a cursing of men who what created in his image. And he says, these things ought not be this way. You see, this is the description of, of the bobblehead. They have information, but it has not worked out in their heart. And Moses tells these people how they are to love God, saying, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He's not, he's not dividing a person up. He's, he's saying, there is nothing about you that's to be unaffected by this. There's, everything is, is included He's making sure that there's, there's nothing that is, is set aside. We're to love God with, with everything. One commentator says, in other words, understanding who God is, verse 4, should lead us to absolute loyalty, verse 5, which leads to the internal transformation shown in verse 6. And this is what Jesus described when he talked about the greatest commandment. This is what Jesus was getting at. Remember with the rich young ruler, when he talked to, talked to him, this young ruler had known and attempted to fulfill the requirements of the law. Jesus recited him. He says, I've done all of these things from my youth. And so Jesus, knowing the man's heart, tells him, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and then come follow me. And it wasn't that, you know, poverty gets you, makes you righteous or anything like that. But Jesus knew what was on this man's heart. And this man was unwilling to do so. Because he did not love God more than he loved his money. He did not love God with his heart, his soul, with his might. It's one thing to know the truth about God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are facts that must be known. The fact is that we have sinned against a holy God and we deserve his wrath. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know the fact that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus died upon the cross and he rose from the dead to redeem sinners. But that truth must be believed, trusted, confessed from the heart. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What's the promise? You will be saved. And if you're going to be able to fulfill the third directive that we're going to get to, you must start with these two. Know the true God and love God truly. And this is how we, we think of those under, one with our first, our own heart, but then those in our influence and those under our care and our discipleship and our parenting. It's not just about getting them the information. We must get them that information. They need to memorize those verses. They need to do these things. But we're talking about what does this look like from our lives? We may look at our own homes and think, man, I, I wish my spouse would place a greater priority on the things of God. I wish my children would take God's word seriously. And, and you know what? Those may be very legitimate desires. But if you're going to help them understand the way of the Lord better, you must know God. You must love God. 
If that is indeed the case, where do we go from here? How do we encourage the growth of this faith? We tell them the true God, you need to love him truly. How do, where do we go from here? Well, the process that Moses is describing, as we see in the next couple verses, the process reminds me of what people call the shampoo algorithm. Have you heard of that before? It is a real thing. And, and these simple instructions, that there's sometimes your shampoo bottles. I tried to look at the hotel, but you know, they're attached to the wall. You couldn't actually see the back the ingredients and the instructions on the back. Who needs instructions? But it says, you know, the, those, it says lather, rinse, and then what? Repeat. Lather, rinse, and repeat. And it's found on various bottles and apparently has increased sales. And, and then that, that has become an idiom to describe when there is a repeated process that has no end. And in Moses' instruction to this generation, I'd like to label it the Shema algorithm, okay? He's saying, know the true God, love God truly, repeat. Know the true God, love God truly, and repeat. And so let's look at the third directive, which is to repeat, repeat. And this is what the instruction to repeat is given here. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall teach them diligently. That's how it's translated in the New American Standard. I believe the ESV and the King James has it exactly like that. The NIV says, impress them on your children. Um, The New Living Translation here, actually, I really like how it's put. It says, repeat them again and again to your children. Because that's what it's telling us to do. The verb that's translated here, teach them diligently, it's a, it's a unique word. It's found only here in the Old Testament. But it's related to a root word that means to sharpen, like someone would sharpen a knife or a blade or a tool. And it's a repeated action that brings the desired product. A number of years ago, Lisa and I, we bought some good knives, some quality knives for the kitchen. And these are the knives, you know, you don't put them in the dishwasher. You wash them by, you wash them by hand. And they come in the block, and they come with the, you know, that sharpening iron that's with it. And you, you, you take that, and you, you know, and you, you slide it across a number of times. You slide it across here and there. And you know, you don't just slide it once, twice, and then you're done, right? No, you do it again and again. You repeat it, and you don't just sharpen your knife at the beginning or once in this lifetime. You have to do this repeatedly, again and again. And that's what this repetition. That's what this word means. It's when it says teach them diligently, teach them repeatedly, teach them again and again, bring this again and again to them. What's repeated? There's a a parallel passage of Deuteronomy 6 in chapter 11, verse 19, and it uses a different verb here. And that one clearly means to teach. Deuteronomy 11, 19, you shall teach them to your children and taking them when you're sitting in the house, when you're walking in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And so what is repeated? The teaching, who the true God is, that we must love him truly. When teaching, we repeat ourselves, we repeat the, the same lesson. We, we do it many times, and we do it in many ways, a variety of ways. How many of you get frustrated when you have to repeat yourself? I've told you once, I've told you, you know, a thousand times. And you, you know, we, we think, I, how come I have to say this again? You know, don't, don't be frustrated by that. We're supposed to repeat ourselves. We need to repeat ourselves. Repetition is not redundancy. It's the key to learning. Jay and I had a, a class together. It was a summer class. It was really intense 
Dr. Farnell, and he would say, repetition. He would growl. He wouldn't just say it. He would growl it. Repetition is the key to learning. And once at the, we had this class that was condensed into just a few weeks, a whole semester. And so we had a lot of reading, a lot of work to do. And one day at the end of class, he, he tells us to read this other article on top of all the other reading that we have. And there was one, one bleary-eyed seminary student who, who raised his hand and said, Dr. Farnell, you had us read that article last night. And he growled back, read it again. Repetition is the key to learning. You know, I, I've seen this in my own life because I've studied things and I've taught things. And then I find myself needing to do what I've studied and taught. And I, someone else gives me counsel and I'll go like, well, I know that already. Okay, and I need to do that. I, or I read a book and I go like, wow, that's a great book. I read it again. I go, oh, that book's about me. Yeah, I mean, and, and you hear it again and again, and you keep learning and growing, and, and we have to learn. And so this, this instruction to repeat what the Bible teaches about the true God and what is to love him truly, this is given. This is why, this is why we, we come back every week. This is why we minister in multiple ways, because we need to keep repeating. And the opportunities to repeat are endless. The, the command to repeat is there, but the opportunities to repeat are endless. And Moses gave examples of when we are to speak of what it means to know the true God and how to truly love God. He says, when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. He's not just giving four different examples. He's giving us two sets with bookends. These are called merisms, where it says... This, and this is the opposite, and everything in between. And then this, and this is the opposite, and everything in, be, in between. Uh, it's like saying everything from A to Z is to be included. All these opportunities. And we are to talk to our children. We're to talk to our, our, those that we're discipling. Those that were as iron sharpens iron. We're to talk about who God is and the need to love him in every conceivable circumstance. You should be able to speak of God at church, obviously. But as you are entering and exiting the movie theater or at home or on vacation with relatives or with strangers in private or with a group in the city or backpacking in the Sierras, every opportunity is an opportunity to repeat the truth about God and our relationship with him. Lisa and I recently found a, a book um, called Every Moment Holy. And it, it's a collection of short liturgies or prayers, written prayers, about every conceivable and even mundane life experiences. And they could be read uh, to help a family or an individual think about what is true about God and our relationship with him. Some of the readings, I was looking at the table of contents and some of the readings are about for the ritual of morning coffee. How do we think about God in that? For a sick day. For nights of days of doubt. For dating or courtship. Before shopping. For paying the bills. For one who has suffered a nightmare. For missing someone. These are just... A few examples, there's 280 pages of such reflections. 
and that every moment holy, and that's volume one. Currently, Lisa and I are reading through volume two, which are the same size of book, and all these readings are prayers, and all of those are related to suffering and sorrow and every experience in that. There is no area of your life that is off limits to God. So speak to your kids. Speak to those in your influence about how God has provided. How God has provided the meal at the table. How the car at the shop reminds us that God is our provider. How the homeless man at the park reminds us not only of the consequences of sin, but of the inherent value of everyone created in the image of God. Every, every situation that we see is an opportunity to speak such truth. There's, there's no subject in life that's not related to the true God and how we truly love him. We're to talk about how God and our love for him informs our use of money, our, our commitment and our understanding of marriage and sex and science and social media and our involvement in politics, our response to poverty and how to respond to unbiblical philosophies and, and religions. There's no age limit to these conversations. Nothing is to be held back. We do it with young and with old, with teenagers and, and to our children as they're raising the next brood of, of children. So every opportunity is to be used for the Lord. And so the plan is to be deliberate. To repeat is deliberate. And we're to do so. And the Jews applied this in a way that they took it to a legalistic way of just tying things around their hands and putting signs up. But he says, everything you do, everything you put your hand to, everything that you're thinking about, every door you're going through, every way you go, speak about these things. How do we deliberately place God's word before our families, and before one another. Well, number one, church. Church is the pillar in support of the truth. Come to church. Bring them to church. Be at church. Be involved with God's people. And sadly, I see two wrong views of the church. There's neglecting the assembly altogether, just doing it casually and periodically, or there is the co-opting it. Hey, you guys take care of it. You guys do it for me. No. This is a tool God has given you as you take responsibility for your family. You're not in contention with the church. The church is part of God's grace for you as you are discipling. Time with your family in the word. Family Bible time or whatever you want to call it. And it's really simple. Open up the Bible and read it and pray. That's all you do. Five minutes. Do that regularly. Do that regularly. Personal studies with each child thinking of where they're at, working, serving together. There are many other great ideas of how we know the true God and love God truly. Would you look for an opportunity to engage with someone from another generation before you and after you for this purpose, to teach them the true God, to love him truly, and to do so repeatedly? And would you think even today and give thanks to God For those who have taught you and those who brought this truth into your life. God is to be praised for that instrument that he used graciously in your life. That God may be known truly. He might be loved sincerely. And this is what happens repeatedly in every part, in every aspect of our life for his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the scriptures that we have. 
And we thank you for the spirit that has given them and would ask, Lord, that you will graciously, graciously use this word in the lives of this church today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.